Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, Achtung, or uh, you know what? What is Japanese for Achtung, Achtung? James Holland, do you know? No. Because we're going to, because we're going for once, for once uh, on this podcast, and we have ways of making you talk. We're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about the war in, uh, well, in the Far East, um, rather than our normal digressions into Normandy. We've been beat up this week on the on the <laughs> we'll podcast. We've been beat, <laughs> exactly. We've been beaten up on the on Twitter this week for um, always digressing to Normandy somehow. So we're not going to we're going to manage to not do that. And we're 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 delighted to be joined by um, someone who's going to be able to enlighten us and guide us and uh, teach us all sorts of and you all sorts of interesting things about that about that theatre of the war. Uh, Rob Lyman, welcome, welcome, Rob. Thanks for joining. Thank us. Thank you very much, both. It's a great pleasure to be on this uh, remarkable show. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob, I'm bati- I'm particularly thrilled you're on because you know we're old palsies days and um of course you and i had that amazing amazing trip um to imphal and kahima a couple of years back and what it, it a was, trip that it was, was remarkable i mean i um i, I laughed to myself now because uh, at one stage we were sitting in in calcutta enjoying ourselves and uh, and you said come on let's go out to barrackpore slim was there that was where his headquarters was let's make the journey and i said oh wow well, it's a bit of a pain it's quite a long way up do you know what it was one of the the most amazing journeys I've ever taken uh, because we went to the seat of, um, it was all run down, they were d- doing it up, but it was the, the location where all those big plans for 1943-44 were cooked up. I mean, it's a horrible place, but it was quite atmospheric. It was remarkable seeing it there. It hadn't really changed much since the war. Apart from all the pig and shit on the floor. There was lots of pigeon poo. There was a lot of that, <laughs> yeah. But I, I have to say, I saw a little bit of your character as well, James, sort of walking nonchalantly into this uh, this old headquarters building uh, where lots of Indians were hammering away and replacing windows and soaring and doing all sorts of stuff as though you owned the place. It was absolutely fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, is what, it, what is it now? What, 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 what is, what's the building now? It was a police headquarters. It's in the middle of a police, right. um, a, there's a garrison in, uh, in Barrackpore right. um, and I suspect it's just been rebuilt for them. Right, right. But but it's interesting, oh, Al, because fantastic. before um, 
when when um, Slim took over as acting commander of Eastern Army in the summer of yes. um, 1943, um, that was the headquarters. So that's where he moved, and he didn't like it because it was in the it was in the kind of, sort of northern suburbs of of Calcutta and Bharatpur, surrounded by kind of slums. It was on the banks of the Huli. And and he just felt it was too difficult to get to the front. It was too sort of stuck away, and it was yeah. just sort of too easy for all that. There was a sort of big compound around there, and, you, and when Rob and I were driving around, you could see lots of sort of old Nissan huts and buildings and that kind of classic British Army colonial yeah. military style um, that that's so sort of distinctive. Uh, and you could see, that, and his his feeling was that the people were, it was too easy to get distracted here, that you weren't kind of properly focused. So after he then became permanent commander and renamed yeah. it 14th army he then looked for a new headquarters from where he could get to the front in the arakan and to the front up and around in um, much yeah. more easily i mean moving around anywhere in that part of the world is not easy and it certainly wasn't easy then in 1943-1944 and he actually moved it to a place called camilla which is now in yeah. bangladesh i think yes. um yeah um but um so we were there but but uh, you know, we were sort of looking at it from the point of view of when he took over. And, and what's interesting about that time is that that is when he was sort of sat down and thought, OK, what is it that we need to do to kind of sort this army out? And how are we going to win yeah. against the Japanese? And, and and it was just remarkable to be there at this place where I think the, the other thing that's very interesting about Barrack Poor is that you know Slim's idea was that he needed to be closer to the front, as as James says. You know, he needed to get to Camilla because it was equidistant really between uh, Arakan and and, and uh, northern Assam, where the, the battles would take place in 1944. Uh, but as as he went forward, um his place at Barrack Poor was actually taken by um the 11th Army Group, so General Gifford, who yeah. came from Delhi all the way across yeah. to, to Barrackpore. So the whole of the army's focus, you know, you have this idea in the First World War of the Chateau General sitting a long, long way from the front. And Slim said, yeah. generals have got to be at the front. You've got to be there. You've got to be close to the action. And he had a really fruitful um, relationship with the RAF, you know, which is not always the case, uh, as you know. And the RAF gave him an Anson aircraft in order to be able to fly from uh, Camilla, uh, to Arakan, then up again to Lalagat and some of the airfields in Assam. And he, it was a, he said it was a battered old beast, but never, ever failed him. So he could, you know, if he wanted, he could fly from uh, Camilla to Lalagat into uh, Imphal and back again, all in a day. See his corps commander in, in, um, yeah. in Imphal, uh, pop into Dimapur, where there's a little rough airfield. Um, you can still land there today. It's always underwater in the monsoon, but it's, it's quite remarkable. And that gave him legs, which he didn't have if he was in Barrackpore. It was just too far away. A, a, a big part of the, the, the change that's happening at that time, though, isn't it, is that, is that the, the war in the Middle East is, is, is settled now. So the Indian Army, because up to that point, the Indian Army, Army has sort of been Imperial Fire Brigade, hasn't yes. it? Yes. Wherever, the, where, wherever there's, a, wherever there's a, a, a problem, Indian Army get, the Indian Army gets sent. So it spends a lot of time in North Africa and, and, and also, in fact, all, in fact, all over... Um, Sort of uh, 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 e e well, e east of east of Dover, yeah. really. Wherever the wherever there's anything happening, yeah. the the, the, yeah. the Indian yeah. Army's present, yeah. and that then ends. And so, part of what Slim's able to do is there's only one thing for him to focus on now, because it because it because after all, it's 14th Army, but he is in he is in an Indian Army commander, it's really, it's isn't it? Absolutely right. I mean, it's a fascinating story because uh, and you, it's very. It's important to call it a um, an imperial fire brigade. I mean, I describe yeah. really the Indian Army as a as a constabulary. It was a particularly lightly armed constabulary. When I tell people that actually in a in a, a company, an Indian company, an infantry company, you know, there were three Lewis guns. I mean, they had basically had a Lewis gun per platoon. It was it was rifles and Lewis guns. They didn't have hand grenades. The boys weren't taught how to use hand grenades. Um, there was no, no there were no heavy weapons. A significant lack of um, of automatic firepower, which was one of the forgotten factors uh, in the collapse in 1942. You know, the, Jap yeah. the, the Japanese arrived with you know, three automatic weapons uh, per, per section, and the poor old Indian soldiers had never ever seen or heard an automatic weapon, or many of them, because they were relatively new recruits, had never seen them before. So the problem is that this this sort of almost paramilitary. It's a bit unfair to describe it as paramilitary, but certainly a constabulary. 
largely largely i mean it was a very yeah. well-trained organized loyal force and it but it was designed to be a fire brigade it was designed to actually provide um, manpower reinforcements to, to the british army so that the british army could go away and do the bulk of the fighting supported where necessary by increasingly well-trained Indian soldiers, that was the story of North Africa and Italy, but actually where the British would take the lead. So, as you say, in 1943, things got com were completely different. And um, the, the Indian army had expanded dramatically in between 1940 and 42. I mean, so dramatically, in fact, that the Indian army began with 192,000 men in 1939. By the end of 1940, there were nearly 900,000. And the entire wow. world two and a half million men and women volunteered for the Indian Army. But I think yep. this is the crux of the whole thing. I mean, I've often described Slim as being a lucky general. He was lucky in the sense that in 1943, he effectively received a new army, this newly recruited Indian Army that hadn't been um, bloodied in Burma 1942 and hadn't suffered the defeat in Arakan. He had the opportunity of taking these new soldiers, new units, and training them, moulding them in... Uh, in the fashion that he wanted. So one of the great forgotten stories about 942 is that he was actually dealing with a phenomenally different army to that which India had begun in, in 1939. And I think it's a story actually just as an aside that India is only just now waking up to. There's really good historians in India and, and publicists who are, who are pushing the idea, which I really, really strongly support, that actually the, the army that ended uh, the war in 1945 was an Indian army uh, in Burma. It was uh, only 10% of the 14th Army, of course, was British. 78% was, was Indian. Um, and it, it was, for the first time, a national army. It wasn't the constabulary that had begun in 1939. So the war changed enormous, uh, enormous number of things, not least of all the standing of the army in India. And um, it was absolutely phenomenal. It really was extraordinary. I mean, just as you've been talking about, you know, the, the army in Normandy, the British army in Normandy was largely a new army. It was a, you know, it was a bunch of youngsters who, who were in short trousers at the start of the war. Yeah. Yes, yes. This is a, there is a parallel there, isn't there? Because the, after all, the, there is, the, there is the, the repeated pattern through the war, which is um, allies get caught with trousers down, um, pull, pull trousers up, possibly even buy new trousers. <laughs> Um, uh, and then, and then, and then engage in this sort of massively built-up shattering of the enemy yeah. uh, thing. And of course, the, the 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 problem is always that the en the enemy is incredibly well motivated. Otherwise, things would be over over much more quickly. You know, you, you should. We, we we talk about this again and again on the podcast. Germany's done by forty three. Japan is effectively done by the end of forty four. There's, there's there's not another year in it, or there oughtn't yeah. be. Yeah. Um, and, and you you do have because you have the certainly the the, yes, the second BEF or whatever you want to call it, Normandy, um, is is absolutely is 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 a is a new iteration, and has fresh training and and the Eighth Army, uh, the Eighth Army units in the in in the Normandy battle, they they stand out because they're old, yes. because they're yes, and there's different expectations of them, yeah, and, and they, they don't really want to be there. <laughs> they don't really not particularly interested. The in other the other like. parallel I think is really interesting is that what you see is is. You know, Britain is, is is defeated in France in 1940, and the army sort of goes back over over the Channel, and yet just a little bit over two years later is the Battle of Alamein, and they you know and they never go you know in Europe they never go backwards again, and actually two years to go from a kind of sort of very small ten division army where you still got a lot to learn to being in a position where you can, can where you can absolutely crush and ultimately then win an entire theatre campaign. Is not very long, and it's the same thing when in in the Far East because what you get is, you know, you get the terrible catastrophic defeat in Burma in, in you know from sort of May onwards, nineteen forty two, um, two and a bit years later in you know, sort of February March nineteen forty four, it's completely transformed and in a situation where it can win again. You know, first holding its own at the admin box in the Arakan, and then secondly, of course, you know. Arguably, and which you have argued, um, Rob, Britain's greatest battle, you know, the Battle of Imphal, which obviously includes Kakima as, as well. Yeah. You know, so it is, it, yeah. in a way, that transformation in just two years on both occasions in two completely different parts of the world, in two completely different theatres, is quite an achievement, I think. 
Yeah. When you're going, when 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 in both cases you're having to go back to ground zero, you know, yeah. after the, after Dunkirk, it's ground zero. You've got to start all over again. You've got to completely build up a new army from kind of ten divisions to fifty-five, you know. And again, what you're saying with the Indian army, Rob, you know, it, it's been defeated. It's been defeated in Burma, it, it, you know, under Irwin, it try and go in and the Arakan fighting kind of European tactics, and it, it, you know, when asymmetric tactics are required, it's a complete failure, absolute disaster. It's ground zero again in the summer of 1943 um and, and that build-up in such a short period of time is incredible really i think it's an it's an it is actually an amazing story but if you boil it all down the story you've just described boil it down to the nuts and bolts you've got about six months so slim had about six months to train mm. his new army so just just imagine that you know you as you said the army erwin's been absolutely humiliated in in arakan uh the British stroke Indian army had um, a British and Indian army. It was the Indian army, not the British army. And uh, but they, uh, they... Uh, Rob, sorry to inter inter interrupt, but it's, it's just worth pointing out for those who don't know that Arakan is the north west bit of Burma. So basically, there's it's accepted that there's only two real routes in and out of Burma. One is on the Arakan, which is on the coast, and that is now Rohin State, where the Rohingyas are and where all the troubles are in Burma at yeah. the moment. And then there is, you know. 800 miles further up the track to the northeast um, yeah. through um, down the Tidim Road and, you know, yeah. across the... Well, uh, it, it's stuff. worth actually just taking a few moments um, just to describe, you know, why this was all important because uh, Burma was, of course, a stepping stone to Malaya and Singapore. It was also, you know, an important British colony and the Brits clearly wanted to have it back, even though um, the, the Americans were always suspicious of Southeast Asian command um, which they they dubbed saving England's Asian colonies, um, you know. But there there, 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 there were uh, really important uh, reasons for the recovery of, of Burma. Uh, but if you looked at Burma, the best way of getting there was actually, as, as, as James described, going down at, through the Arakan coast because you could just sort of hop, skip, and jump to Rangoon via Akyab, which was the the capital now known as Sitway. But um, you know, we, we uh, the Brits, rather in their complacency, thought that it would be relatively easy just to push down in a conventional way through Arakan and recover it and seize Akyab, 300 uh, miles flying from uh, Akyab to Rangoon. So pretty direct route. And it's really the only way in which you could um, progressively get to Rangoon without having to fight through uh, northern Burma, which... Um, uh, Churchill had a number of uh, fantastic descriptions for it. One of them was uh, jumping into the sea to wrestle with a shark, which I always love. The, the other, the other one was um, unpicking the porcupine quill by quill. You know, you don't want to do it the hard way. You want to do it the easy way. Unfortunately, Arakan in 42-43 proved to be very hard because we deployed precisely the same tactics. I mean, with good British troops, by the way, good British troops and good Indian troops, well-trained Indian troops, we just had no idea how to how to stop the Japanese advance and how to smash their defensive positions. But I'm going back to the first point about 1943. So at the end of the, the Arakan debacle, Slim effectively had uh, six months to rebuild the army. And what a challenge that is. I mean, it's uh, mm. you think about um, the many, many years that the Wehrmacht had, of course. But of course, there was, there was a lot of change in 1943. Not only was there the establishment of Southeast Asia Command with uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten, which was phenomenally important and very successful, but also we had Auchinleck coming in to take over from Wavell as Commander-in-Chief in India. Well, that was absolutely pivotal. Auchinleck was the unsung hero of the reconstruction of the Indian Army in 1943-44. Some great books on this last few years. Daniel Marston's written a brilliant book on called Phoenix, um, the rebuilding of the Indian Army, or, or a title similar to that. Uh, and he makes he makes this point that you know there had to be um, brains behind the rethinking about uh, how the Japanese could be defeated. And this is why I'm um, actually slim and, and all kind of, well, there's a lot of serendipity here. Slim just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Orkelec was in the right place at the right time because, of course, he'd been sacked from uh, the Middle East. He was, uh, he was kicking his heels in uh, Rawalpindi, I think, not knowing what whether he'd ever have a job to do again. And then Lord Linlithgow was effectively retired as the Viceroy and Waver was kicked upstairs. So it all, all, all the jigsaw puzzles moved. And, um, and Auckland ended up being, I mean, he was a fabulous man. Very interesting. Both of them were Indian Army, as you said at the start, Al. They loved the Indian Army. They loved Indian soldiers. They could relate to them 
in a way that um, British generals just couldn't. And it's very interesting looking one by one across all those generals and the Far East who were very successful, Indian Army officers, with one exception, Uvri Roberts, who commanded the 23rd Indian Division at Imphal and then uh, into uh, Burma in 1945, were Indian Army officers. Uvri Roberts, by the way, he was a Royal Engineer. Oh, there we go. I give it a pass <laughs> for that. <laughs> so, what, what, so what is it about the Indian Army that equips people for this? And also, the, but the other, the other thing, I think it, it's all very well. All this people at the top. How do you get? How do you get that all the way down to the all the way down to the bottom? Yeah. Especially when politically motivated, the Indian Army mm-hmm. at this time where independence has been. You know, you, you've had you've had the interwar years have been a period of, of, of you know great gains for Congress, and there's been all sorts of discussion about about before the war's even on the horizon, you know, what actually is India? Where's its role? What, what's the British government actually going to do? And the British government kicking the can a bit. Um, uh, yeah. Churchill, of course, famously um, uh, uh, not disposed to any kind of um, uh, Indian independence at all. Yeah. What's, how, do you, how do you get the Havildars at the bottom yeah. to train the men? Yes. I mean, this is the most remarkable thing, isn't it? Because it, 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 it's, it, like, it, it's not like it's, it's cherry pit, it's b- British people all the way down the sort of Christmas tree. How do you, how do, you do it? it? It's a great question. And uh, look, I, I'll try and, try and uh, get to the nub of it quickly, although it's quite, there's quite a complicated response here. Uh, and I'm going to really uh, annoy people by saying it's important that we understand the essential duality in human nature that can accept the need for independence on one hand, but also the need to fight the fascists on the other. And I came to this in about 19, 1991. I was interviewing a, an, Indian, an Indian veteran, and I said to him in my arrogant British way, I said, uh, well, why, why do you fight for the Raj? And he looked at me as though I was mad. And he said, Rob, I wasn't fighting for the Raj. I was fighting for India. He said, I didn't know, you know, I was 18. I just came out of school. I didn't know who, um, who was governing the country or all its constitutional arrangements. It was an irrelevance to me. And he said, but I said, I did know one thing. And I said, what was that? He said it was um, Nanking. And I suddenly thought, okay, this, that was 1937. Wow. They knew, he knew, he said, we had a free press. We all read uh, the newspapers. We knew what the Japanese were doing in China. And we knew that that was not a regime that we wanted to have any truck with. So when you look at the two and a half million Indians who volunteered to join the Indian armed forces, most of them into the Indian army between 1939 and 1945, the vast bulk of them coming through in 1942 and 43, they did serve their own volition. Look, there is, there is a very well-worn argument around coercion that these people had no choice because they are in a colonial... Um, yes, uh, and that's the thrust of Yasmin, uh, Yasmin Khan's um, what the, the Raj at War book. Yes, yes. And, and it's very much the, 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 the sort of... Um, and it's, you know, Shashish Kapoor and all the rest of it. You know, they're all sort of, you know, they're, they're pretty down. Well, I, I, I don't accept the argument for one moment. I mean, I think there's, there, is, there, is, uh, there is merit in part of the argument, but the reality is it just assumes that people are binary creatures, that there's only one choice. You're either a nationalist and therefore you can't fight with the British, or you're a, um, uh, you do decide to fight with them, which means that you've been, your nationalism has been subverted by the colonial um, regime. I, I do think that's it's not a logically supportable argument, in my view, um, because the reality is that people were making a, a, a choice those who thought about it politically and, and in terms of the national aspirations were making a choice to put on hold their aspirations for independence whilst they fought for the, uh, against the present danger. Um, and Auchinleck very famously said in 1945, every single Indian soldier worth his salt is a nationalist. And I absolutely believe that and agree with it. it mm. he, right. Uh, you know, when Indian soldiers, like this, this guy who I interviewed said, uh, you know, I was fighting for India. I didn't give a, give a moment's thought about Britain or the Raj. I was fighting for India. And I think that's a, that's a really important point that the concept, the idea of what India might be, not what India was or had been, right. was motivate, very, very motivational for these young men who were fighting and laying their lives on the line. Um, the, idea, I, the idea that you had to be coerced even subconsciously into the Indian army and thereby to sacrifice your life doesn't stack up for me.
Rob, why do you think it is then that that narrative doesn't have a, a, a tighter grip within India today? Because I remember some years ago trying to get an oral history project up on, off the ground in India while there was still the chance. Uh, and I did manage to interview a few, but not very many. Uh, and I got, you know, in terms of Indians over there, I got absolutely brick wall of kind of zero interest. It depends where you go. It depends where you go. So um, if you go to North India, if you go to um, the, the Indian Punjab, uh, the Punjab was always known as the sword arm of India. Um, yeah. You have a very, very different attitude uh, to, the, to um, the role of the Indian army in the Raj and in the context of the Second War than you might do if you go to um, um, academic sources in the West. It's, and and my, my experience, having spent a little bit of time in India uh, more recently over the last year, uh, is the academic um, attitude to colonialism or imperialism in the West, which has subverted our understanding of, of the Indian army and its achievements. Right. And Sashi Thapur is you know, an extreme example of that. Uh, in India, but there aren't any oral history programs. There's no, there's no, no imperial war. No, no. Well, in, well, the, well, the reason for that is that you know it's it's in 1947 is a little bit like ground zero in India's right. history. I mean, there's a big gap. Uh, popular Indian history sort of starts in 1947. Then there's a big gap when you go back to the Mughals. People are really interested in the Mughals. This is absolutely fascinating stuff, but not much in between. Um, and that includes the Second World War. Problem. And there is a, there is a, there are a series of national myths in India, very, very widespread national myths, um, which are still very, very dominant. You know, what one is the Indian National Army, uh, that very small number of men who were subverted by the Japanese or persuaded after the defeat of Malaya and Singapore. Oh yeah. To to um to fight Sobhaz against. Chandra Bose. Yeah, Subhas Chandra Bose, and um, and that that myth that the Indian National Army represented um, it, uh, the, an expression of Indian nationalism and was the founding pillar of India is very, very strong today. But my counter argument is that might be true. The Indian, the Indian National Army may well have played a significant role in thinking about how we might create a different India. But actually what was much more powerful were the millions of men who joined the Indian Army to fight yeah. fascist totalitarianism and Japanese militarism. Um, that was the strongest expression of uh, of Indianness, uh, much much stronger actually than than the INA, and much more effective in the long term as well. And it's very interesting if you look at um, the Red Fort trials in 1946 and and what subsequently happened. It, it was very very important that the that India wasn't seen to be punishing the INA. But as soon as they as soon as the the trials were over and um, the boys were most of them were let go or finished their their sentences, the whole story. Um, the, the Indian army that had fought and won in the Far East in particular completely dominated the, the discussion. The INA just disappeared into history. So it's, it's an important, it's political, very, very political. And that's it's still very dominant today, but it's been very interesting. I've been tracking this for quite a long time. It's very interesting looking at certainly newspaper reports, young historians, in fact, Srinath Raghavan and, and a number of other um, historians absolutely see the Indian army to be one of the founding pillars of modern India of, and, and Pakistan and Bangladesh, by the way, as well. And, and it was the fact that they were able to, the Indian army was able to build up to such a formidable um, extent to become such, you know, such an incredibly powerful instrument of state and of war in 1944-45. I mean, one of the things that I, I sort of bang on about here is that, you know, VJ Day, it's absolutely fabulous that we celebrate VJ Day for lots of reasons. But what we shouldn't do is memorialize or um, over-exaggerate the British contribution to defeating the Japanese because it was an Indian battle. It was a 44-45, it were Indian battles by a largely Indian army led by Indian army officers, men. They were white, but they had committed their lives to India. And actually, I just in, uh, in the Indian official history, I was just looking at this the other day. In 1945, there were more Indian army officers than British army officers in the whole of the Indian army. So the Indian army uh, ended uh, uh, with two, just over 2 million men in 1945. 1.3 million of, um, uh, sorry, SEAC, Southeast Asia Command, uh, Allied Land Force of Southeast Asia as it was then within SEAC, had 1.3 million of whom 606,000 were Indian, only 4,500 British officers in the Indian army at the time. 
So, you know, talk about the change from 1939, 1945, absolutely massive. That, I mean, that, 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 that number in itself um, surely presents an argument against the conception of coercion because there's not enough yeah. people to do the coercion. Yeah, uh, well, well this, the argument, the coercive argument, which is a, an old Marxist argument about yeah. slaves. False consciousness and stuff. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Argues that people did it subconsciously. Uh, but I think it's, I'm, I think it's fatuous. I don't think it holds water because what it does is it removes the ability of individuals to make autonomous decisions. It removes their agency completely. So what mm. you're doing, you're simply saying, well, these people were slaves. They had to, you know, in the old imperial systems going back thousands of years in history, you know, we created slave armies. The Indian army was never a slave army. Never. You know, it was entirely voluntary army. They had no conscription of anything. The, the argument against coercion, I've read it, I read quite a lot, actually. And yeah, Yasmin's not too bad on this, but there are some, uh, some other uh, British historians who, who push this argument. Uh, and it's very tortuous. It doesn't actually make sense. You're actually saying that that young hurricane pilot who I interviewed in 1990 uh, and who willingly went to fight the Japanese because he was terrified of what they might do to India had no agency. He had no political uh, no, no ability to make these decisions himself. So I, I, I'm very strongly against the idea of, uh, of coercion. Uh, I, and I do come back to this essential duality. We, we all, as human beings, have the ability to understand what we need to do as human beings in a time of crisis. I might not like the party that's taken me to war, but for goodness sake, it's my country and I'm going to join up and, uh, and, yeah. do, and do what is necessary. Now, now um, we, um, James is always talking about walking the ground. What other ground have you walked the ground of Kohima and play uh, uh, those battlefields? Because after all, we are talking about Myanmar, so it's difficult getting in and out. And uh, uh, I, mean, I mean, maybe it's easy getting in and getting out. What, uh, we've, yeah, we've uh, uh, Rob and I walked Kohima, did Kohima and Imphal together. Yeah. And, so, um, so, so take us through the experience of being in, in, in a place like that. Is it built on now? Is yeah, it still... Kohima, you know, the time of the war. <laughs> is it built on? That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Kahima is still an incredibly atmospheric place, but the, the extraordinary mm. thing about Kahima, now let me just start by saying, look, get to Kahima as soon as this COVID stuff is behind us. Get out to Kahima. It's actually quite easy to get to now. You don't need a restricted area permit, just need an air ticket and make some logistical arrangements. It's, uh, it's 46 miles up into the hills above the Brahmaputra Valley. And uh, when you get to Kahima, it's one of the, well, there are a number of, you know, battlefields around the world where which are defined by their geography. Kahima is Kahima is this. There's a jolly gate great ridge running between two big hills, one hill, big hill, and an even bigger hill, Mount Paul Abadze. And that ridge, uh, Stopford, commander of the 33rd Corps, uh, described it when he first saw it as the cork in the bottle. This is the thing that stopped uh, anyone coming in from Burma to get to get into India. I mean it's quite an extraordinary physical feature. And we talk about Kahima. Kahima was the Naga village on, as you're looking up the hill on the left-hand side. Then you've got the Kahima Ridge up the middle. It's got lots of names. It really confuses people. Summerhouse Hill, Garrison Hill, Kahima Ridge. They're all the same thing. Uh, and then behind that was a, a, a long series of matted mountains and for another 120 miles all the way into Burma to, to the Chindwin Valley. So this was the mountain range that sat between the Brahmaputra Valley and the Chinran Valley, Burma on the right, um, uh, India on the left. And it really was the gateway to India. I mean, it's an extraordinary place. Uh, Imphal is, is very different. Imphal is fascinating in its own way because it's uh, an old alluvial lake and it's surrounded by mountains. So if you're the Japanese and you're coming across the Chinran, you've got to climb up into the, uh, into the mountains for about 60 miles across. The road runs up uh, what is known the Shenam, as the Shenam Saddle from a place called Tamu. And uh, as you get up to the top of the Shenham Saddle, James and I have stood there. We've stood in trenches that were dug in 1944. Oh, it was amazing, Rob. It's, 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 it's one of the really great places to go and do a battlefield study because oh. Manipur State, in, in which it lies, um, there has been a kind of insurrection there and it's been, on, it's been a kind of you know, absolute travelling no-no for many, many years. And it's only just in the last few years started to open up. And, it, and it's still kind of advised as not being safe to go there, but it's perfectly safe to go there. Uh, and it yeah. is absolutely remarkable because no one's walked there and no one goes up there. And so there are all these foxholes and OPs and trenches and all the rest of it. And the view 
from where we were on the Shenham Saddle, looking back across the road from which the Japanese advanced from Burma and from which the Burma Corps retreated into India in 1942, is largely unchanged. So you are, you, you can, I mean, you, you know I love doing this kind of then and now thing where you've got an old black and white photograph and you try and stand in exactly the same spot and, and kind of sort of marry it all up. And you absolutely could do that. And you could, you, but, but suddenly you've got the same view in glorious Technicolor, in, in in reality rather than two-dimensional monochrome, uh, and you've got the smells and the and the proportions and that sense of scale, which is why I'm such a big advocate of of walking the ground. But it is an unbelievably rewarding place to go on a battlefield tour because you can go to Calcutta and you can see where it all started and happened, and you know see all the old kind of imperial yeah, buildings and all the rest of it. And you get that kind of sense of kind of the vibe, and then you move on up to fly into Imphal and you beetle around and and you see all these you know Nunchagung and and you go down the Tidim Road and all these places which you sort of vaguely heard of when you've read your John Masters novel uh, or whatever it might be or memoir, and then you go on up to uh, to Kahima and the road you are taking from Imphal to Kima is one and the same road. So much so that on one particular hairpin there is an old Bailey Bridge you know, spanning the, the, the hairpin. I mean it's absolutely extraordinary. And it's, it's, it's identifiably the same place. So it's a great place to go. But but Rob, I think what's very interesting, just very very quickly, I think it's worth just explaining. You, you know, you said Slim had his six months to, to turn things around. But how does he do that? Because it's not just about training. It's also about morale. It's also about logistics. It, it's that turnaround. So very quickly, just, just do explain that, because I think it's something that people would be interested in. Well, well, it, it, the, most, the, the first enemy that Slim had to fight and the Indian army had to fight, in fact, and the British armies, uh, the British units that were supporting the Indian army was itself. The fear of the Japanese and the fear that they would never be as good as the Japanese or good enough to defeat the Japanese. So confidence was paramount. And actually, what that's what Slim did in 1943. The second half of 1943 was primarily about revitalizing the confidence of the of the armies in India. And you know, that started right at the bottom with um, good training, of course, good leaders, but tr but training uh, from experienced soldiers, soldiers who had experienced the Japanese before. Interestingly enough, there was a very significant um, Australian contingent in the in Indian Army in 1943, uh, bringing some very, very powerful learning from New Guinea, where, of course, by 1943, the, the Australians were absolutely, um, had learnt all their lessons from 1942, had recovered and were fighting the Japanese on their own terms and, and were very successful at it. So 1943 uh, was essentially a, a lot of this it was um making sure that the the structures of the indian army were rebuilt the units i mean um uniforms food weapons equipment training relentless training uh, day in day out um but it was also there was also a little bit of sort of what, what you would call uh, propaganda as well because the soldiers needed to understand why it was they were fighting and what, what, why it was worth their while sacrificing their lives for a battle against the Japanese. And Slim created this methodology, which he, uh, he, he deployed very well. And it was a top-down methodology, but the troops loved it, which is about proving that the, the Japanese were, you know, what the Japanese uh, empire represented was evil. It, it was, it was anti-human. It uh, didn't... It, didn't support what uh, Indians uh, aspired to in terms of their nationhood. Uh, and soldiers, when they fought the Japanese, could see this. They could see that the brutality of the Japanese soldier actually it wasn't human. It wasn't a reasonable thing to, wasn't a reasonable way to behave. But, but what he also did is he gave them confidence in their ability as soldiers. So if you think about you know, sections and platoons and companies, he would send whole companies on long patrols. Um, Certainly down with the 23rd Division uh, guarding the, uh, the gate into Burma along the Chinwin in 1943, they spent all their time on patrol, going across the Chinwin, going into Japanese-held um, Burma, uh, beating up Japanese-held villages, finding information, capturing Japanese soldiers. And he did it on an overwhelming scale. He admitted this in Defeat and Victory. He said, you know, I'd attack a section 
in a Japanese section with a company. But it meant that we it meant that we beat them, and the boys could say, "Yay, we've done that!" You know, we move on. But it's so also, about, it's also about teaching. It's also about teaching the teaching of the jungles your friend, not your enemy, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, that was that was really really important because, as as you know, James, in the 1942-43, this was an alien world for most Indian and British soldiers. Yeah. Uh, and yet the Japanese, they were no better, really, uh, in the jungle than, than the Brits. They just got used to it. They had been trading in Hainan Island for, uh, and Formosa in advance of 1942. Uh, and they would got used to traveling through the jungle and using it as a canopy, using it to hide themselves. Um, so you know, that's what happened in 1943. It was quite extraordinary that you know, by 1940, 1944, and this is really important, the Japanese didn't know this. They had just assumed that the, the British and Indian troops they had come across in 1944 would be the same die a lot they'd come across in 42. Yeah. There's they a sort of complacency there, isn't there? And, and the other thing, Rob, is is, is air power, isn't it? Because, because yeah. you know, you, yeah. you to, to, yeah. what what Slim gets, um, and, and others seem to understand, is that what you need to do in fight, if, you, if you're attacked by the Japanese, you just got to hold firm. You mustn't retreat, you, yeah. you, you know, because yeah. they feed off what they capture. So if you can deny them that bounty, then you're gr yeah. going to grind them down. So what you want to be able to do yeah. is to be able to resupply your own troops, but not the enemy. Uh, and the way you do that, of course, is by using um, air transports and, and dropping in supplies, but at low level. But the only way you can do that is if you control the skies. And the problem they have up to 1943 is it's only been hurricanes that have been sent over, not Spitfires, and not the latest mark yeah. of Spitfires, like Mark 8s yeah. and 9s and things. Yeah. And they're starting to arrive in the autumn of 1943. And they get, and the fighter pilots get trained on them to a really high level of intensity because they can't afford to lose these Spitfires. And they can't yeah. afford to lose these pilots. So they get a, a handful of squadrons and train them to within an inch of their life. So that by the time they're taking on the Oscars of the Imperial uh, Japanese Army Air Force, they're vastly superior. Their planes are superior, their training superior, and they're going to win. And they do, which then enables, by February 1944, when they absolutely need it, the Battle of the Admin Box, that the guys at the Admin Box defending it can be resupplied from the air because the RAF have secured airspace because they've got these superior pilots and their superior planes completely right and the spitfire arrived at the end of 1943 and completely transformed the air superiority um <clears throat> environment in burma and it was right i mean that there was a conception that slim called air mindedness it was saying look we don't want to be tied to the as he described it the ribbon of the road you know let's think about looking after ourselves so we are self-sustaining so if a battalion goes into the field, it mustn't rely on the road to supply itself. If it does need resupply, it needs to look virtue, needs to look upward. Let's be air-minded. And to be fair to uh, all his predecessors, of course, you know, th there wasn't the air transport capacity before 1943 to be able to do this. And we need to remember the Battle of the, the Edmund Box in Arakan in February 1944. Uh, of course, a lot of the resources from the hump airlift were diverted by Mountbatten to win the current battle. But it definitely demonstrated that uh, aerial resupply was the answer to logistical problems for cut-off units. And units um, were taught not to regard themselves as being cut off, but to regard themselves as bastions against which they could counterattack the Japanese. It was an entirely different mindset, a different mentality about regarding your position. Rather than bunkering in and saying, OK, I'm, gonna, I'm in a siege mentality, they, they said, no, no, we're going to now make ourselves a uh, Slim used to call it a hammer and anvil. We're going to be the anvil upon which the uh, the, uh, the hammer of our counterattacking forces can fall. We're going to go out and we're going to attack the Japanese and cut them off and make them feel surrounded. But this is so radically different, though, to yeah. what's happening in Europe, isn't it? Because all the all the European armies, the Allied European armies, are, need road. Yeah. So you know yeah. you do see all the nor all the northern all the northern European battles basically are for crossroads therefore they're for towns where five roads and meet bridges. nodal points and, bri and bridges nodal points yeah. and all this sort of thing yeah, yeah. and and if you're if you're not needing to do that you can really you can fight really very differently yeah. i mean after all, uh, and in western europe the, the, the allies do achieve air supremacy but i mean i'm just for the for the for, for our patreon listeners i'm reading uh, pierre klosterman's um oh, yeah. uh, uh, memoir and I'm right at the end of the war, and they're still losing tempests day in, day out to flak and to and to German fighter intervention. And so there's no way you could have run the the, the war in the West like this with these sort of hedgehogs and 
uh, air supplied hedgehogs and using air in actually in such an imaginative and different way to the way they're doing it in the forest. It's I mean it's it's one of the strengths, isn't it, in a, in a way of the way the the British Army. Because and the Indian Army, because basically you've got a blank slate ta- tactically. Yeah, and no one's uh, in between the wars. No one's really, you know, the trainings from major generals down is a divisional thing. There is no training overview. So when you figured out when you figured out a problem, the army commander could go right. This is how we're going to do it, and we're going to need to tie in with air. And and you and then you train from your situation rather than having a like the German mind the German mindset which is the other way round which is like this is how we do it. Well, Al, Al I mean that, that's the rub. The, the rub here is that yes, there was a blank sheet in the Far East, and, and but you also needed to have brains. You know, you need to have the generals who can actually who were flexible enough not to say, well, this is the template we've used it before, it's been successful elsewhere. We're going to apply that, which was the story, frankly, of forty two and forty three in Arakan with successive um, brigade and divisional commanders, even even the corps commander, Irwin, just not understanding that this was an opportunity for him to think, forgive me, outside the box, to do things differently. But, um, but Rob, I mean, you know, what, what I think is really interesting is that, you know, an infall, two entire divisions are flown yes. in. I mean, yeah. that, that that's just amazing by 1944 yeah. standards. Yeah. And I think yeah. one of the things that, I think one of the things that, you, you know, you've really brought to my attention in the past, and we've discussed a lot on our own, is... This notion that you know, there's so much focus when we talk about 14th Army on Slim and his unquestioned brilliance, but the, his immediate subordinates are kind of left out of the of the narrative. You know, you've got to be really keen to kind of to know who Punch Cowan is or who Uvery Roberts yes, is or right. Stopford or you know. <laughs> but these guys are really quality. You yeah. know, Frank Messerby and these they, types. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely tops, and they're all they all get it, and they're all singing from the same hymn sheet, and they're all tactically flexible and yeah. imaginative and and willing to think out of the box and, and outrageous and 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 courageous and all those things that sort of physically and morally in a way that you don't need actually in 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 the western hemisphere you know the yeah. western western yeah. theater and i think this is one of the you know again the, you know we, we were constantly faced with this sort of criticism that the kind of sort of british armies and in, in the you know allied armies in the west are terribly stodgy and boring and all the rest of it. you don't need to be anything other than stodgy and boring in 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 in, in northwest yeah. europe yeah yeah. In Burma, in Northeast India, you absolutely do. And, and when we need to have brilliant, tactically flexible commanders, yeah. we have yeah. them. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 but that wasn't the story up until, uh, until 1943. 43, it all changed in part because Slim sat down with Mountbatten and, uh, and allocated his core individual commanders. He was, it's a very important thing to remember. Look, in, in 1942, we effectively had one experienced corps commander in in India, one experienced battlefield commander, and that was Noel Irwin, who commanded the fourth corps when Slim brought his Burma corps back. So once the Burma corps had come back from Burma in 1942, we had two corps commanders. We had Irwin and Slim. Irwin was then promoted to command the Eastern Army, which meant that we only had one corps commander, one corps commander who actually knew anything about fighting the Japanese and one divisional commander, Bruce Scott, who commanded the post-Burma division. You know, we didn't have any generals. We didn't have anyone who knew anything about anything. India at the time was full of people who were really good at polishing the leather on their armchairs, but actually they couldn't fight. And, you know, and, and the other thing is Burma, India, wasn't going to get anyone, anyone really high quality from the Mediterranean and Italy and Europe because they were needed there. So this was the first challenge that everyone has forgotten about generalship. There weren't enough good generals. There weren't enough people like Slim who was, you know, really good tactically, very, very exceptional strategically. You could see the big picture in a way that few others could. So, you know, I, you asked me earlier what, what was the basic challenge in 1943? Yes, to retrain the army. Fundamental challenge was actually to try to get some generals who were, who would be any good. It's very important thinking about this, actually. I've done quite a lot of work recently on uh, Reginald Schoon, who commanded the Fourth Corps mm. in, uh, in Imphal. Look, he made so many mistakes at the start of that battle. I mean, Slim really um, uh, graciously took much of the blame for like not calling Punch Cowan back early enough from Tidham, uh, and then not briefing Douglas Gracie in the 20th Division that he'd be required to withdraw all the way back to Shenham. I mean, Schoon's orders explicitly lay out what needs to be done. But when the order to Gracie to withdraw came, Gracie said, oh, I know nothing about a withdrawal. No one's told me about why, why I might have to withdraw. I mean, that's just a failure, failure of command. I mean, 
disastrous. And, and as a consequence of that, uh, Schoons wasn't invited by Slim to lead uh, four corps uh, in Burma in 1945. Uh, but by 1945, blimey, it's corps commanders. You know, uh, Stopford and 33 Corps, Frank Messervy and, and, um, and, and four corps. And all of the divisional commanders were handpicked, men who had won their spurs all the way from um, the admin box in Sinsweo in 1944, uh, through to the defeat of Mutaguchi's legions in, at the end of 1940, at the end of that year in, in, in Fal. But um, there wasn't a uh, there wasn't a large range to choose from. You know, you just get the idea that you can take this good guy and that good guy. They, they weren't. They just didn't exist. Um, and that's one of the reasons. I mean, Slim could not have achieved. You're absolutely right. Could not have achieved anything in 44, or indeed uh, the dramatic um, achievements at McTeel and Mandalay in 45 without those divisional commanders, Punch Karen, of course, being one of them, who could just let rip. I mean, it was an ideal Major General's War. Yep, perfect. Well, well, you know, as ever, um, I feel like we've just we've just scratched the surface. We'll have to get you back on, Rob. Yeah, yeah, Rob, come point. back on another time. We could, we, you know, because we've done the we've done we've done the general and the generals, and yeah. now maybe we, we we could get some specific in. Because uh, yeah. I would, I, I mean, I, I I'm gonna just just Co- Kohima, Imphal, the whole thing is the most extraordinary battle, it is and incredible. I think we should uh, we should we yeah. should talk about that another another time. Yeah? You've got to go out there. I would require no second invitation. I'm sure <laughs> Rob doesn't need another invitation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, COVID, COVID permitting, I, I'm going to be there next March. I'm also going to do another trip to Burma in November. Again, COVID permitting, uh, permitting rather, because um, as a historian, it's fundamental. You absolutely need to walk the ground, and the more you yeah. see it, the more you think about it. The more you talk about it, I mean, I had an amazing time in March this year. I went down to Mool Mine and spent a lot of time walking around the Satang Bridge and getting your head around the failures in 1942. I mean, I've been quite critical of people like, um, you know, the, the 17th Indian Division at the Satang Bridge in the past. But seeing the ground and seeing the challenges that these boys faced, well, you know, it, it is extraordinary. Uh, when you're faced with Aida's amazing 15th Army, blimey, how do you solve that problem? Well, you'll have to invite me back. We'll talk about that another time. Okay. Well, let's do, let's do exactly that. Um, uh, thank you so much, Rob. Thanks for talking to us. Um, uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this uh, for once. I mean, we did talk about Normandy, <laughs> uh, but but you know, mainly mainly Burma, ladies and gents. There you go. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye-bye.